Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. How do you invest your money? If you invest your money, how do you invest it? Do you invest it in real estate, in precious metals, in the stock market? Um, Trish and I, we invest our money, but to be honest, we're not really sure, too sure how we invest our money. We have a financial planner, and uh, when we transferred our funds over to our financial planner, who does go to this church, but, but when we transferred our money over to him, uh, we were like, here, take it, please go do stuff, because we have no interest in thinking or talking about this. And, and so we, we did that, and they said, well, hey, could we meet four times a year to talk about just investments and how's it going? And we're like, no, like, I don't think you understand. Like, we want nothing to do with this. This is why we hired you. You take care of the money and do your magic to it. And so he said, well, how about once a year? And it's like, well... If it would make you feel better, yes, we will meet with you once a year to talk through our finances. And so, so we have money invested. We just don't like working with it much. So we have a financial planner who does that. That's how God has gifted him. But with that being said, we know that investing our finances is very, very important. And uh, Trish and I and our family are benefactors of that. When I was a young child, I was the youngest of five kids, and my parents uh, invested some money, not a whole lot. I think it was like two to $5,000. Uh, they invested that money for us when we were born, and that money grew. And because of its growth, it was able to pay for my college and also help make a down payment on my first house. And it's just amazing how that small little investment can have such a huge return. And, and that's not only true in the financial world, but also in the spiritual world. You see, while financial investing is important, spiritual investing is so much more important. Matter of fact, it is of eternal importance. And as we'll see in today's passage, even, even the smallest amount of spiritual investment can have an eternal payout. You know, as I've got into First Thessalonians, what I was excited to get into was to, um, was to hear how Paul was going to, you know, illuminate us to understand how the coming of Jesus really affects our day-to-day -day living and how that is. But, but what I was surprised by and what seems to really saturate this entire letter up to this point is just how much Paul loves the Thessalonians, how invested he is in them. He's not a one-foot-in, one-foot-out guy. He's, he is committed to them. He's committed to, to, to praying for them, for developing them in the faith. And it's a great reminder to us to, to maybe be a little bit more strategic, maybe a little bit more intentional about how we are investing our life and how we are making spiritual investments in those who God has put around us. So if you would, please open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, it's page 986 in the Red Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you, hopefully. Grab that. It's page 986 in the Red Bible. 
And as you turn there, I just want to be honest, like this passage was very convicting for me. Um, you know, inside the walls of the church, it's easier for me to invest in people spiritually because it's my job, it's my occupation. But when I walk out the doors of the church, sometimes I'm like, oh man, I'm just exhausted. I just want to veg out, right? But, but this passage is a great reminder that when I go home into my house, that I need to continue to invest in my wife and my children and my neighborhood. When I go uh, to, to, to different athletic things to invest in the people there because such a small investment can make such a huge eternal difference. So let's look together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 5. This is Paul writing to the Thessalonians. He says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, whenever we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. And just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful that you are not a distant God, that you have come near through Jesus and you are near to us in the indwelling of the Spirit, that you continue to invest in us and grow us in your grace for our joy and for your glory. God, pray as we think through and maybe seek to be more intentional about spiritual investing, pray, God, that you will give us insight and wisdom how we might carry out this challenge with joy. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, each and every one of us have a different amount of money to invest. Some of us may have no money to invest. But the reality is we all have the same amount of time to invest. We all have 24 hours in a day. And I'm curious if you were to put up a pie chart of what, how you spend your time, what would it look like? I actually found this one online, and it is time use of an average workday for employed persons age 25 to 54 with children, which I think is a number of us here. But you'll see there, there is seven and a half hours of sleep. Uh, there's eight and a half hours of work, two and a half hours of leisure and sports, an hour of household activity, hour of eating, hour of caring for others, and about two hours of other stuff. This is kind of what they say is the average of how a person uses their day. And I wanted to put this up because I think a lot of times when we consider spiritual investing or 
sharing Jesus with others, we, we kind of think that we have to massively rearrange our schedule. Um, like we need a whole nother pie slice, right? So like, like you're not allowed to eat, you're not allowed to have fun, you're not allowed to do errands, you're not allowed to sleep. Like you can't do those things because you need to spend all this time investing in other people. And while it might change your pie slices a little bit, this spiritual investing that God calls us to is, is actually layered over the entire thing. If it was a pizza pie, it would be the cheese that infiltrates every sector of our life. To prove it to you, uh, in Matthew 28, Jesus gives a great commission, with men, which many of you are familiar with. And Jesus says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. In other words, go and spiritually invest in others. And what's interesting is that English doesn't, the, the Greek word doesn't translate well into English for the word go. Because the word go in that commandment from Jesus is actually a participle. Which means that the literal translation is, and you're going. And you're going, make disciples of all nations. In other words, wherever you go, however you go, make disciples. Spiritually invest in others. And so, you know, just to put it real practically, if you are in a bowling league, God is not calling you to leave that bowling league to go make spiritual investment elsewhere. He's saying, right where you are, right in your going, make spiritual investment where you are. And so this may shift your calendar a little bit, but really the challenge is to see how we can incorporate into every area of our life. So, so we're going to look at this passage, and there's a couple of things we're going to see about spiritual investing. The first thing is the hindrance to our spiritual investing. Like, why is it so hard for us to have this on the front of our mind and on the tip of our tongue? Why is this not a, a, a burden that we, that we just you know, breathe out, okay? The second is the hope of our spiritual investment. You know, whenever you make an investment, your hope is for a return of some way, of some sort. So what's the hope of our spiritual investment? The third is the hardship in our spiritual investment. In other words, whenever you make an investment in someone or something, it costs you something all the time. And so what does that look like? So first, let's look at the hinderer of our spiritual investment. Again, Paul stopped by Thessalonica on his second missionary journey, and he was there for three weeks preaching the good news of the gospel. And then a Jewish mafia who did not like the, the impact that Jesus was having on their culture uh, came and chased Paul and Silas and Timothy out of town. They actually had to leave in the middle of night out of threat of their life. And so they go on to Berea, and in Berea they chase him out of there as well, and they have to go down towards Athens. And after Paul leaves his opponents in Thessalonica start slandering Paul. They start saying things like, yeah, Paul, here today, gone tomorrow. He's not still here with you like we are. We're here, right? We love you. We care for you. Paul doesn't. He just wanted the fame. He just wanted the notoriety. He just wanted your money. But now he's gone. And so come back to us, right? Turn on Jesus and come back to us. And so Paul is addressing that slander, but also reminding the Thessalonians of just how much he loves them and how much he has and seeks to invest in them spiritually. So look at verse 17 with me. He says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart. The, the word used for torn here is a picture of a child being torn away from their parent. Paul is just using this intentionally to show them how much he dearly wants to be with them and how much he loves them. He says, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted 
to come to you. And then he makes it personal. I, Paul, again and again, wanted to come to you. But, and then here it is, Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. Again, you can hear in the words of Paul how much he longed for them and loved them and cared for them. And it's just such an example for us of how we should love our neighbors and long for them and for their spiritual good. And we don't know how Satan hindered Paul. It doesn't tell us in this passage. Personally, I think it is just the opposition he has in Thessalonica. Paul came, he preached the gospel, people came to faith in Christ. And whenever people come to faith in Christ, it tends to divide families and societies and businesses. And so he probably had, uh, had, had, a, had a, uh, a target on his head if he came into town. And so he couldn't come back in Thessalonica for his own safety, but also probably for the safety of the Christians there as well. And so that's my guess on how he was hindered to come back to invest in them. But what's so interesting is even if we don't know how he was hindered, we do know who hindered Paul. He makes it very clear. He says, but Satan hindered us. Satan hindered them from coming back to continue their spiritual investment. Now, I know that we may not think about Satan a whole lot. Uh, maybe we don't even believe in Satan. Maybe you don't believe in Satan if you're here. But the hard thing about that is Jesus did. <laughs> Jesus talked about Satan frequently, 16 times. He talked about the devil a separate 16 times. He refers to him in other language throughout the Gospels. You see, God not only wants us to believe in Jesus, God wants you to believe in Satan. Because if you do not believe in Satan, there is an enemy rolling around looking to take you down that you are completely unaware of. We learn about this in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And then it goes on and says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world, which Paul will also talk about to the Thessalonians, the sufferings that they're enduring and how it's common for Christians. But here's what we see is that God wants to make sure we understand, and Jesus wanted to make sure we understood, that we have an enemy, an enemy that is seeking to hinder us from talking about the most important things in life with those that God has put in our life. Think of it this way. The, um, you know, here it says that, Peter says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. So I Googled it this week and was like, okay, what do lions like to eat? And one of lions' favorite uh, meals is zebra, okay? And so imagine if, if there's a group of zebras and they travel in herds. Uh, imagine there's a herd of zebra. And there's one zebra that's like, you know what? I don't believe in lions. I don't think they really exist. I've never seen a lion. I've never heard of a lion. So I'm just gonna go ahead and separate from the herd and go, you know, wherever I want to go on my own. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to be independent. You know, me do me type of thing, right? You do you, he do he. So, so the zebra goes, right? Well, whether or not that zebra believes <laughs> there's a lion, it's going to find out very soon that there are lions out there, right? And he's going to learn about three seconds before his life ends. Because the zebra, excuse me, because the lion is on the prowl. In the same way God is saying, don't be ignorant. You have an enemy out there seeking to destroy, 
an enemy that does not want you making spiritual investments in other people or even in yourself. He doesn't want that. You need to know there is an enemy so that you can be on guard against him. I mean, have you ever wondered why it is so much easier to talk to your kids about school and sports than it is to talk to them about their faith? Have you ever noticed it's so much easier to talk to your spouse about the kids or about the weather or about a vacation than it is to talk to them about God? Have you ever noticed that it's so much easier to talk to your coworkers and neighbors and friends about the Packers than it is to talk to them about Jesus? Have you ever, am I the only one? I think this is pretty common. And the reason it's harder is because there is an enemy out there who's trying to deter us from talking about the one who matters most. And so we must remember the hinderer of our spiritual investing is Satan. Don't know how he's hindering you or how he hindered Paul, but we know who is doing the hindering. The second thing we see here is the hope of our spiritual investing. Again, when you make a financial investment, you hope for a return. Doesn't always happen, but you're hoping there will be a return. The same is true of a spiritual investment. And Paul tells us about the return we get for spiritual investment in verse 19 and 20. And it is some of the most interesting verses in all of 1 Thessalonians. And to be honest with you, if you just read these to me, I would have said, that's unbiblical. (laughs) But it's in the Bible. So I guess it is biblical. Okay, it's very interesting. So let's look together. 1 Thessalonians uh, 2 verse 19 says this. For what is our hope or joy? or crown, or boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming. Class, what is the answer? What is our hope, our crown of boasting, our joy when Jesus comes? It's Jesus, right? That's what we just sang. All our boasting is in Jesus. The apostle Paul says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus. And yet in other places, Paul says peculiar things like, on the day of our Lord, he says this in 2 Corinthians, on the day of our Lord Jesus, You will boast of us, and we will boast of you. When we hear the word boasting, at least I know, I think of bragging about yourself, right? Like you're just telling people how great and how wonderful you are. And so we tend to have a very negative understanding of the word boasting. But for the Apostle Paul, the word boasting meant to brag about God, to brag about Jesus. God actually wants you to brag, not about yourself, but brag about what God has doing and is doing in your life, in you and through you and to those who you are investing in. God wants to tell, wants you to tell the testimony of how good he is. And so let's continue. Verse 19 says, For what is our hope and joy, our crown of boasting, before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. What Paul is saying is that when Jesus returns, he will rejoice with Jesus, not in his missionary journeys, not in in his religious accolades, not in the fact that he wrote half the New Testament. What he will rejoice in are those whom he invested in with the good news of Jesus, as we'll see later, to establish them and to encourage them in their faith. We, we read about this actually in the context of marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. It says this. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, 
that he might sanctify her, that is, set her apart, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church, here it is, to himself, to Jesus, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And so here you see in the context of marriage, God is saying that husbands are supposed to be at work under the work of Christ to help grow their wives in holiness and sanctity. For what purpose? To give her to Jesus when he returns. You know, I've, I've had the privilege to do a lot of weddings. And the wedding morning is, is kind of funny to me because Typically, uh, like if it's an afternoon wedding, the guys have nothing to do in the morning. They're like, what do we do? I don't know. Let's go play golf or something like that, right? Because they got nothing to do, and then they show up a few hours before the wedding, get some pictures done. They get, the, the morning is very relaxed for them. The ladies, typically, it is much different. Uh, usually, the ladies go to some sort of salon, right? I think I've never been, and they get their hairs done, and their nails done, and their makeup done and whatever they else get. I don't know. I, I don't know. You guys know more than I do. But, but they get like all prettied up, right, to come to the church. And the guys are coming from golf. And, and then they get ready for the, the, wedding, the wedding ceremony. But when they are at the salon, uh, whoever is there working on the bride, you know, makeup, nails, hair, whatever they're doing there, their goal is not to make the bride pretty for themselves, right? Like they'll enjoy, they'll enjoy the work that they have done. Ultimately, their goal is to make the bride beautiful for the husband, for the groom that she will be presented to. In the same way, we are called to invest in people spiritually. And we get to enjoy the blessing of people growing in their relationship with Christ. But ultimately, we do it to give them to Jesus. And that is our hope and our glory and our joy to present them to Christ when he returns. And so we, we have seen the hindrance of our spiritual investing is Satan. And he works in sneaky ways. He makes us busy, distracted, feel guilty, all sorts of things to distract us. Then we have the hope of our spiritual investing, which is ultimately to present this person to Jesus. Finally, we have the hardship of spiritual investing. Again, if you look at the map here, I love maps. I love my laser pointer. Um, second missionary journey, uh, Paul goes to Philippi and then to Thessalonica. Again, just there for a few weeks, preaching the gospel, gets chased to Berea. And then he gets chased out of there by that same uh, mafia, and they, so he sets sail to get further away and comes all the way down to Athens. And this will come into play in the verses that we're reading. So let's look there, verse one of chapter three. He says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. I, that's where I got the picture of spiritual investing, to establish and exhort you in your faith, to, to help you build your life on Christ and to grow in Christ. Now for Paul to do this was a hardship for him. It was a sacrifice for him because he had to send Timothy. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you probably know Timothy was not just a travel companion of Paul, Paul called Timothy his spiritual son. 
He was closer to Timothy probably than any other person on the entire earth. Timothy was his boy. And yet Paul, for the sake of the spiritual investment in the Thessalonians, said, I will send you away. This is probably about a year after Paul was originally in Thessalonica. I will send you up there to check on them, to exhort them, to encourage them in their faith. And so he sacrificed his spiritual son for a season to go up there, not knowing if he would return. Many people who send their kids on the mission field can empathize with this and understand what it's like to send your children on the mission field. It's a sacrifice. The other reason why this was a, a hard on Paul or difficult for Paul or, or suffering for Paul is because Paul was in Athens. And Athens was like the epicenter of thought, right? It's where all of the philosophers were. And, uh, and so Paul, I mean, for an evangelist, Athens was like the Super Bowl. Like it was the most important place. It's where all of, uh, of the thought throughout the Middle East or throughout the Mediterranean kind of went out and came in and was processed and went back out. It was a massive strategic city for them. And Paul says, you know what, Timothy, instead of coming here and going toe-to-toe with the philosophers with me, you go away. To give you an illustration of what this might be like, so, you know, the Super Bowl's coming up and Kansas City Chiefs are in it and Patrick Mahomes is the quarterback of the Chiefs. And he really only has one good receiver, uh, named Travis Kelsey. The rest are all suspect, if you know. But uh, anyways, um, he'd probably agree with you on that. Uh, but, but it would be like as if this week, if he said, you know what, Travis Kelsey, um, why don't you go up to Canadian Football League and help them out a little bit this week? I, I got the Super Bowl on my own. You just, you just go, right? Like, that would be foolish. He, he's such a weapon for him. In the same way to send Timothy away, and then in Acts 18 to read about how he went toe-to-toe with these philosophers This was a sacrifice for Paul. You know, when we send people away to the Hispanic church plant, it's gonna be very hard. We're gonna be sending people that we love and care for who are very invested in the church away. But this is part of what it means to continue in the great commission work that God has called us to. Paul continues, reminding them that this is not just a suffering that Paul faces, but is common to all Christians. Verse three, again, he says that no one be moved by these afflictions. We'll talk a little bit about that. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you over and over again beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. For the Thessalonians, the affliction at the very least was being hassled by the people who did not like Christianity. But it was probably more than that. They probably had family members disown them. They could have lost jobs, certainly respect in the community. Some of them may have even lost their lives. And what Paul is saying here is that you should expect this, right? This is what happens when you follow Jesus, is that there is is an amount of investment that that you must suffer in order to be faithful to Christ. You know, Oprah Winfrey famously said, I always knew I was destined for greatness. I always knew I was destined for greatness. Of course, she was talking about just her influence and her channels and her money and her plane and mansion. I always knew I was destined for greatness. Christian, did you know that you are destined for greatness? You may not have a lot of money. You may not have your own airplane or a mansion. But God has given you, as James said last week, this treasure in jars of clay, the good news of Jesus, 
that you can go and invest in others and then have the privilege of suffering for Jesus. You see, whenever we make an investment, it is always a moment of, of suffering, of, of giving away, of sacrifice, right? Like, so when my parents invested for me, they were sacrificing a vacation, maybe a home remodeling or something else to make that investment. If we are investing spiritually in others, maybe it means we're sacrificing our own comfort. Maybe it means we're sacrificing our own apathy. Maybe it means we're sacrificing our own binge watching. It could be a whole number of things. But in order to invest, there is a hardship and a suffering that comes along with it. Paul continues to show us just the kind of, kind of his concerns about what might have happened. Remember, Paul had been gone for them for a while. Verse 5, he says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter, being Satan, had tempted you away from the faith, and our labor would be in vain. Again, Paul reminds us here of the reality of Satan. That Satan not only tries to hinder our spiritual investing, he actually tries to hinder our spiritual commitment to Christ. And Paul is worried that somehow, some way, if it were possible, that Satan could tempt them away from the faith through the hardships that they were enduring. And so again, Paul is saying, listen, if you are enduring hardships as a Christian, this is the norm. This is what you should expect. Don't, don't feel like because you're enduring hardships that God is against you. No, no, no. This is, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And, and so the question is, if following Jesus brings us some hardship, brings us some sacrifice, why would we do it? And the answer is because Jesus is better. <laughs> Jesus is better than a comfortable life. Jesus is better than a self-focused life. Jesus is the greatest gift that we have. You see, Jesus endured great hardships for us, great suffering for us. He left heaven above to come into this broken and messy world. He was mocked. He was persecuted. He was crucified on the cross. He literally went through hell for you because he knew what was greater than you remaining in your state of comfort and ease was to be in relationship with God. And he's calling us to follow his pattern. It's not an easy life to be a Christian, but it is the best life. It is the most joyful life. Let me end with this. Um, we've seen how Paul talks about the hindrance to our spiritual investment being Satan, whatever he does to deter us. We talk about our hope of our spiritual investment, which is to present people to Jesus when he returns. We talk about the sacrifice of investing in others, which is to give up our time, our energy, maybe our reputation, whatever it might be. But we would be amiss if we did not talk about the hero of our spiritual investment. And church planning, if you've been here a few weeks, we've talked about this a little bit, is that by God's grace, we've been able to plant several churches that have planted churches. So pretty familiar with the church planting world and strategies and things like that. And if you parachute drop someone into the middle of nowhere to plant a church, the estimate is that it would take about five years for them to plant a church, uh, to start holding worship services, to start with a faithful presence, get to know people, start talking to people about Jesus. And then about after five years, you could probably start a church if you don't have a mother church helping you with that. 
Paul and Silas and Timothy did not have five years. They were there for three weeks. <laughs> Sorry, it's funny. They were there for three weeks. Three weeks preaching Jesus in the planted church. That's it. Just three weeks. And now they were gone for a year. And I'm sure Paul and Timothy were like, did they make it? What happened? We're gone. But then we read verse 6 in chapter 3. I'm cheating a little bit going to next week's passage. Just one verse. Verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. You see what Paul and Timothy and Silas discovered or were reminded of is that even though their spiritual investment was very minimal, God could exponentially multiply that investment. What they discovered is that even when they had left Thessalonica, when they, when they stopped ministering to the Thessalonians, God was still there. He was still building his church. When I was in college, I, uh, I, I became a Christian just before I went to college. And uh, I love Jesus. I didn't know how to talk about Jesus that great, but I love Jesus. And, and I joined a fraternity house. And I always have to tell people it was very much not a Christian fraternity house at all in any way, shape, or form. It was what you think of as a fraternity house. But I was there, and man, God had grabbed a hold of my heart. And so um, I wanted to tell all the guys about Jesus in whatever way I could. I would bring them to uh, the, the college ministry. I would bring them to church. We had Bible studies in the fraternity house. Um, it, was, it was a great time uh, in my life of spiritual growth just to love on these guys and share Jesus with these guys. And, and when I was done living at Fraternity House and I moved out, it was a little bit discouraging because, <laughs> because there wasn't really, it didn't seem like there was a whole lot of fruit in all of my efforts. But sure enough, the years afterwards, one by one, I hear stories of many of those fraternity brothers coming to faith in Christ. And it was just such a great reminder to me that the little investment that I made in that time, God was going to continue the work. My college minister and I often joke that the best ministry I had to the fraternity house was leaving the fraternity house. Because God stayed and God drew them to himself. Friends, you invest money in different things. You invest your time in a lot of things. There is no greater investment than to spiritually invest in one another, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your city, in your workplace. There is no greater investment because the potential reward is all of eternity. The potential reward is God himself. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Uh, just for the Apostle Paul. And what a great picture of how we should love people, how we should seek to spiritually invest in those that you have around us. God, pray that, that for myself and for others here, that, that we would seek intentionality. Because if we don't, we, it just falls by the wayside. And so help us to be more intentional, to invest in people, to love people, to talk about Jesus with people. 
so that one day we can present them to you with great joy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.